0: If half of your habitations have no way of connecting with the economy, how can you
1: grow? Labour is the most perishable commodity. In early 90s, our economy is around 200 billion dollars or so. It's grown more than 10x. You know, progress comes in layers. In the year 2000,
0: 54% of India's habitations did not have all-weather road connectivity. Only time the state reaches out to you is when it has to harass you. Is a bad way to build a country. When I see the next 10 years, it is, right. it's It's higher ups and higher lows.
1: Hello, I am Mukesh Pansal. Welcome to Sparks. Our guest today is Neelkant Mishra. Neelkant is a renowned economist. He has this unique ability to translate complicated economic topics to very easy to understand simple language. In last 15 years, he has been able to come up with these very unique insights about Indian economy, culture and society. He is currently Chief Economist and Head of Research at Axis Bank. He has worked on Prime Minister's Economic Advisory Council. He continues to work with many state and central government committees on various matters related to Indian economy. In today's podcast, we talk to Neelkand about how did rise of India start to happen? What was state of India before liberalization till 1991? What forced liberalization? What are the major reforms that happened over the last 30 years? Why there is so much excitement about this being India's century? What are the challenges that we are going to face in the coming decades? as well as what are the big opportunities. I found the conversation with Neelkant incredibly insightful. I hope you will find it useful as well. So Neelkant, I have known you since IIT days. uh, During IIT you were this, you know, J4, Rockstar guy, like all of us were in awe of and we would have imagined a lot of different futures for you, all very bright obviously, (laughs) but would not have imagined that one day you will be among the top economists in the country with so much in-depth knowledge about what's happening in the economy. invested over more than two decades. How did your transition from studying computer science at IIT to becoming, you know, building a career in economy? Like, how did that whole journey happen?
0: Yeah, and thank you for being so generous. Uh, (laughs) I think we were all in awe of each other uh, uh, because our batch was, was, I think, extremely talented. And we've all done very well uh, in whatever we have done. So it's all been, uh, I would say, a series of happy accidents. Uh, So as you know, I... uh, Joined uh, Hindustan Lever out of campus. Um, why that happened was that it was the first company on campus, it paid the most. Um, I wasn't clear on what I was going to do. Mm. Um, there were people, as you know, I mean, 70% of her batch is now settled in the US. Right. People wanted to go abroad. There were some who wanted to go for an MBA. Uh, I wasn't clear what I wanted to do. Uh, and so it was the first company, said, Let's try it out, it pays well anyway, and got through. This was an experiment HLL was running at that time of hiring computer science people too. They were, I think, way ahead of the rest in investing in IT. Then, uh, so there was those three years of intense grounding in business. Um, everything about uh, you know, supply chain planning. I shifted one product, Wheel Green Bar, from uh, during manage- as, a, as a management trainee, from weekly replenishment to daily replenishment. And I could see how... Inventory levels in the system were coming down. Those are lessons that I have used in my economic research. Mm-hmm. Even like like during COVID, how the global supply chain bullwhips were running. And the lessons are all drawn from from those experiences. So it was very intense. Uh, whole range of oil buying. I've done tea tasting and tea buying. Uh, so it was fascinating. And uh, I, I did not think of doing an MBA at that time. Then the ninety nine two thousand. Uh, uh, the, the, the the boom in investments happened. Uh, we tried doing something on our own. Uh, uh, perhaps it was a bit ahead of its time. Perhaps we were too young to execute. How long
1: did your start attempt last in 1999? I'm going to ask you three months.
0: Seven months. Uh, so from the time that we started putting the idea together to signing a term sheet and the VC backed out, we ran out of money, our own savings, and you know, not being from a business background. And I think As we discuss how India has changed, uh, I think this is one of the most dramatic changes that you can think of, that there was no way to get capital. And then I decided to start doing tech again, because in thinking through those business plans and all that, I started getting fascinated with that again. So I joined Infosys. I uh, started uh, working on what is now called big data and business intelligence. It was called data warehousing at that time. Uh, I also did a few projects on enterprise application integration, all that. Um, but then, you know, this bug of reading uh, The Economist, reading, you know, uh, about big trends that are shaping our lives. In fact, even when I joined Levers, uh, I, my primary motivation was that, look, computer science seems a bit too abstract, right? that it's not affecting common people. I want to understand how how brands are built, how how people behave. And uh, uh, so so I was thinking of doing an MBA. And then another common batchmate of ours who was in tredge 1st Boston said, boss, people do this MBA. Ke baad bhi karte hai log. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so why don't you try? I said, look, I have no training at all. And uh, he said, look, uh, why don't you, I mean, give it a try. If you don't get through, that's fine. So I got through. Uh, so I joined CSFB in Singapore. Uh, uh, I was hired to help cover IT services as a sector, as a stock analyst, um, but my boss at that time was the head of Asia Tech, so he said, look, um, let's do, uh, I mean, because, you know, I need some help in covering semiconductor foundries um, and the tech sector, and uh, so he said, okay. So, I taught myself uh, how chips are made, uh, various technologies, like the, the, the if you remember, the, the new display technologies, plasma display panel, TFT, LCD, all of that was happening. Uh, so we did a lot of fun work. Um, 2005, when I was ready to become a lead analyst, I moved to Taipei. I started covering chip design companies. 2006, I got married to a doctor, hmm. and of course, she couldn't work in Taipei. Fortunately for me, CS was st- starting in India, so I came here. For reasons we can discuss later, <laughs> I chose to cover healthcare. Okay. Uh, then my boss told me, look, healthcare is too small a sector. You need to cover something bigger or something more. Right. So I started covering metals. Mm-hmm. Um, in covering metals, I started, uh, because, you know, in, whatever happens to steel, copper, aluminium in the world is because of China.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you need know, to start understanding China. start started doing a lot of macro work. 2010, the firm asked me if I wanted to be an India strategist. I said, look, I have zero education, formal education in, 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 in economics, in finance. Uh, do you really think I can do it? I said, yes, you can do it. And I'm very grateful to the firm that they believed in me. So over the next uh, three, five years, I self-taught myself. Uh, so I would ask a question. How can the rupee go from 44 to the dollar to the to 48 to the dollar? And no one really expected it to happen. And now it has happened. Will it go to 53 or not? Right? And that's a question. And I asked around and I realized that all the treasury departments that uh, exist in banks cannot think beyond one or two months because that's where the positioning is. None of the global economists and foreign for FX strategists would ever spend time on India, right? Because the USD-EUR, the USD-JPY are the big big crosses which are important. They said, okay, it looks like this needs some work, mm. so I bought a book on international economics, I read through it, I read a lot of papers, and I said, look, looks like rupee is going to fall further. Mm. I was lucky it fell further, and said, so I said, wow, this works, right? Then we latched on to the inflation problem, right? Inflation, everyone was saying, oh, high base effect, inflation is going to fall. I did a lot of reading, I was helped by a lot of very well-educated colleagues, and I said, look, till the fiscal... Discipline uh, improves inflation will not fall, right, so I drew two pictures, one was in uh, monetary tab, one was the fiscal tab, mm-hmm. so you tightened the monetary tab, you kept the fiscal tab open, and inflation won't fall. inflation didn't fall till the fiscal tab was tight. I said, "Oh, this is fun, right um, and around that time, I had started to observe how life in my village was changing, so uh, I villages in East Champaran and North, North Bihar. And uh, I remember asking my father in 2006, uh, frustrated by how long it took to get to my village, Just to, till the time, from the time Kya you were what changed My father thought a lot and he said, Lo would like to Right, so in 40 years, that was the only change. And by 2011-12, I had, when my father went to the village, I could talk to him on the phone. Hmm. The cell phones had started working. He said uh, one day I said, what's to plan hai? Uh, And he said, hmm. "Betia ja rahe. I Said, "Wow!" So when are you going to come back? Because I remember when my uncle would—he uh, was a school teacher in Betia. You our summer vacations when his school restarted, it was a day-long project, hmm. right? So the whole household would wake up, cook breakfast for him. He would walk to a station and take another train, then take another train. Correct. For oh, me, Betia was three-quarters of a day away. Hmm. So, I said, to go back? So, he said, you <laughs> So, I said, Betia is kitna. It's so, 25 km. Wow. And he used to take three-quarters of a day to Correct. travel that twenty five kilometers. And I said, look, this is, this is stunning. Right? And um, so, people had started living in the village because they didn't have to commute uh, uh, or you know the, the commute was much shorter. And... Uh, I said, boss, this must be happening at a national level. So I started, and, and I, I recall that the first sign of this change, and we'll discuss that uh, later, is was uh, was the road came to our village. And uh, so I said, look, let's look at it at a national level. So we looked at the Prahan Mantri, Sadak Yojana. There was no data, so we pulled out the data. I remember talking to a very senior policymaker, uh, after we published a report called The Silent Transformation of India, how, how roads and then electricity and then cell phones are transforming India at the grassroots. And uh, he said, Wow, this is amazing. Why don't you show it to you know, XYZ? Mm-hmm. I said, I was aghast that mm-hmm. I, I went in with the apprehension that this is the data, this is you're showing. Then I realized no one knows it. Then I met Nandan, who was still, I mean, was just starting the UID project, which has been absolutely transformational, right? So, uh, and Nandan said, So, who all have you told this to?
1: Mm.
0: I said, Look, I'm a stock analyst, Uh, I'm a markets analyst, I've done marketing in Singapore, Hong Kong, London, US. Now I'm getting bored of this topic, it's been three months, Uh, now I'm moving on to the next topic. Mm. He said, What? I've been trying to educate people on UID for three years, I don't think they've still got it, right? Okay. So, so you need to be at it. Right. And uh, so I started writing opinion pieces mm. and then started getting more traction and I realized, wow, this, is a, this is, looks like a very interesting idea. Then people said, look if all of this is changing, why, is, uh, why, why isn't this showing up in GDP growth? Mm. So then I dug deep into how GDP is calculated. And I found that India, 45% of India's GDP is informal by... 45%? 45%. still is. I think it would have fallen by now. We'll Mm. get to measurement. But at that time, it was 45%. And uh, so, almost by definition, you can't measure it. Mm. Right. Right. And it said, so then I wrote a piece on uh, how India's informal economy Mm. is doing so much better. And then as, as I kept asking myself questions, so... Like India's agricultural economy, mm. right? So, because the first thing that comes, happens when a road comes to the village is that milk starts moving out. Mm. Right. right. Do you know, till five years back, I don't have recent data, 65-70% of the milk never left the village. 65%
1: will it consume in the village itself. Yes. Which yeah. means there's really no direct economic value. Correct. People are probably consuming it, but they're not able to generate surplus. Exactly. Which they can use for something exactly. else. Exactly. So, so uh, because
0: if you isolate these villages and... In doing this research, we actually travelled around quite a bit, right? so you could see that there is this uh, village which got a road, there is a village uh, uh, which was uh, uh, four kilometres away but did not have a road, night and day. right? Uh, so here people were, were getting into dairy, the labour rate so much higher, here the labour rate so much lower. So uh, काम काम so, the, you know
1: the the drift I'm getting is that you initially started by just being very curious curious you just started asking very fundamental question ki, you know, why does the rupee go up or down against the dollar why does you know how do they measure perhaps you know GDP and so on and you kept going into that rabbit hole by mostly self studying you know you self studying. and and what is what
0: what uh, as as I started uh, getting more ambitious because, you know, this thing was working, right? right? And that's part of the reason why I think India is also at a place where people are realizing, oh, this thing works, right? So everyone is now becoming more ambitious, which is great. Uh, so then my ambitions grew. Then I started looking at trade. I started looking at uh, how much value add um, is actually, actually happens in the economy, uh, what really drives it. Around this time, uh, I think some of my work started getting noticed in, among policymakers, and I started getting roped into... Mm. Uh, serious policy, like, you know, the FRBM review committee, Mm. like, you know, GST was being implemented, right? right? Uh, So I asked myself, okay, so what should be the rate of the GST, Mm. right? And I was telling my associate at that time that, look, you're working on history, Mm. right? Because no one has attempted this. Mm. Then I went and took that estimate to some senior policymakers Mm. and said, uh, hey, you know, is this, is this how the, 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 the first rate of the GST should be calculated? Wow, uh, I don't think anyone has thought about this. And uh, then he took it to the FM. Then the Revenue Neutral Rate Committee was set up, uh, and I was asked as a, to join that as an advisor. Uh, and then I could see how the discussions were happening. I think NIPFP had also put out an a, a estimate after that, and so so they were. So as this started happening, I started realizing that it was much more fun. That it was it was, uh, and then my ambitions kept growing. So I have not stopped, right? So so then 2018, uh, the firm asked, because our Asia strategist had retired, so they asked, do you want to do Asia strategy? And I said, yeah, I mean, I would love to. And so the last five years, uh, I've been reading up on China, and Japan, global trade, global food, um, the business of leisure. Uh, and uh, I think, I can keep doing this for 20
1: years and still have enough questions left over. Wow, amazing, outstanding journey. And so basically you've been at it for more than 20 years now and continuously just studying, learning, asking questions. And also I think you augment your you know study work with field work as well. Yes. You go to all these remote parts of the country, spend time and connect the dots between what's happening at the yes. grassroots levels and what does you know, the big picture macro perspectives looking like. I have a lot of follow up questions, but let's just go back. Can you just a little bit talk about you know? I want to see if there are any dots, what you did in future. Connect with you know how you were as a kid. You know growing up. So what was your childhood like? You know how were you? I mean obviously, I mean at least some. I know like you know just getting into J is hard. You know J four is probably insane. You know at least beyond the reach of what I can think of. <laughs> what were you doing like you know growing up in your, your middle schools and high school? So I was uh, I was a weak child. Right, so I was
0: never good at sports i think i uh, my father i think was particularly fond of me because I was physically weak uh, uh and uh so I used to read a lot um I was all you know hardy boys three investigators you know not not serious stuff, of course uh, but read voraciously right so so like ten books a week hmm. type uh, ten you know, books a week type reading right and and he introduced me to so there was a his the and there's a library in Bukaro, that's where I grew up, so mm-hmm. state city uh, and uh uh yeah, so it was it was a lot of reading which I really was thrilled by mm-hmm. by tenth eleventh uh, standard that started like you know that's the age where you get enamored of physics right uh, maths, physics. Uh, you read, you know, Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time had just come around.
1: Did um, read uh, Brief History of Time at the age of 11-12? Not 11-12, the standard
0: 10th. Standard 10th, oh, <laughs> 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 okay. So, I'm starting to get scared now. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, I don't i but think that those are concepts which are you know, the quantum, anyway, we'll tell, uh, so uh so, so, I really wanted to study physics. So, then my... Uh, Physics teacher uh, said was physics So want to do? I said, I want to study physics. We will go to the physics department. So he said, Dekho, and this was 11th. Mm. Uh, and so he said, Dekho, IIT we have physics in right. so, IIT. So you go IIT and physics physics. Mm. I said, okay, that's a good idea. Uh, and so I started preparing for JEE Now, as it happened, uh, I got a good rank mm. and I chose IIT Kanpur because it had a MSc physics mm. program, right. right? But all seniors told me, uh, if in the first year, is there any way the curriculum is common, if you, if you don't like it, mm. getting back to CS is going to be a nightmare. Right. But going from CS to physics is going to be a lot easier. Yeah. So yeah. I said, okay. Uh, uh, so I chose CS because I could get it. Right. In the first year. I got to know a lot of students in you know, physics right. and I yeah. figured that that perhaps was not.
1: Not very, make a very good impression. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> say least. I said,
0: Chalo. so that's why, you know, my, my attraction to CS was always a bit uh, weak.
1: Right.
0: Right. And and you know, and I know, and we should not discuss our grades, but
1: no, <laughs> They were not mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, the So
0: areas of computer science which I still right. don't get. So, uh so yeah, so that that's, that that's about.
1: But so, so one thing, so growing up, you were a voracious reader, and you I think you are continued to be. I think a lot of your self study revolved around. I think I don't even want to estimate how many books you read by now. Uh, but any other things, you know, any other childhood traits or conditioning shaping, you know, which you think has made you who you are. No, I
0: think uh, so. And and questioning. So uh, I've deliberately not read them, but I used to write a diary when I was in between you know, I think 9th, 10th standard onwards. And asking questions on who am I, why am I here, right? Uh, what is God? Who is God, right? And uh, I remember picking out, uh, of course, um, I, so my father, when I was going through some turbulent times in IIT, you know, as as IIT does to you, right? So you it, to, to everyone, that it just shakes you up. I mean, you think you're good, and then you land up in this, pool of extraordinarily talented people. And then you have this humbling experience that was b great B-ata right? And uh, I think my father noticed it and he had given me the Gita and I still, uh, in fact, at one point I knew like the first hundred shlokas of the Gita with every week I would recommend yeah. to get a new one. and mm. But even in 11th, 12th, I'd started asking, when I started asking these questions, so I started, in fact, my first experience of reading the Rig Veda, mm. which I found... I think uh not suitable for kids mm. um, <laughs> was was then, and I couldn't understand it of mm. at that time. I tried reading the bible, you know so so i'd i started asking myself this question so why am i here right. uh, who, who am i um mm. and in IIT, again um my BTEC project was uh with Mukree, I mean, Mukesh, Mukesh, um, the other oh, uh, Mukesh. yeah so uh, was on generation of language. A uh, generation of animation using natural language, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Mukesh was doing um, the animation part. I was doing the natural language processing, and we had done courses on AI, uh, you know, gesture vision and computer vision and all that. We published quite a few papers on that. So, when I was struggling to encode the English grammar, remember this is this is when 486 was supposed to be a very fast processor. Uh, I didn't know how to code it. So, my professor said, "Look, there's this book, The Language Instinct, which has just come out."
1: Yes, yeah, Steven Pinker.
0: Yes. Uh so why did you read it? And so I read it. I was thrilled. Mm. Right. And what like totally new concepts at that time, right? Then uh of course Mukesh and was rubbing it in when he went to MIT and said, mm. Look in the Pinker's office is next <laughs> to mine. But uh, uh so so this was uh so as I've dug deeper, right? So over a period of time then read like, the Selfish Gene, when right. I was starting just starting yeah. to work. And uh I think that those questions about who we are, what motivates us, Uh, so even today, like you know, just this morning, uh, I was listening to how the earliest kingdoms in Africa developed, Mm. right? Or the fact that the kingdom of Mali was, uh, you know, attempting to reach the western coast uh, of uh, of the Atlantic Ocean Mm. 150 years before Columbus, right? so so and and then you know the book that i just finished is a horse the wheel and language uh, how how language and culture and you know how the 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 domestication of horse the development of the chariot uh, all of the so as you put this into that continuum yeah. right uh, it all starts to make sense and and so um, yeah, so that's that's perhaps uh, okay. another another thing which has kept me curious at a very fundamental level mm. and forces me to read and learn and, and keep myself grounded. So,
1: by the time you are 2021, 20, you already had a lot of these traits about asking deep, fundamental questions and probably staying with those. But then, staying with that curiosity and asking a question, introspecting, reading about it, you know, reading, I think you mentioned. At Gita for a long period of time and probably contemplated about What is the yes, intent of that? So I think the reason I'm emphasizing on that is some of these partly you know, in this whole podcast series we'll talk a lot about impact if you have life. Mein, how to shape the journey. Part of that is really knowing who you are is yes. very important. I totally agree. Because you know, and for that, paying attention to these small t- what are your natural tendencies. For example, for me I've realized is one is risk taking, I'm very comfortable. Mm. And you know that some of the risks we can't discuss on this podcast. But uh, I was, I realized by the time I was 22 that I you know, yes. Like I'm okay with the consequences. A lot of times the how bigger the risk, the consequences can be pretty bad, right? Correct. And you have to live with that. But I was, that's uh, so-called, you know, um, comfort with failure. But knowing those, you know, fundamental traits and then shaping your journey around okay. that, right? In okay. your case, I mean, what you are doing now, both intense curiosity, you know, introspection, reflection, Voracious reading is a big part of who you are, right? Yes,
0: yes, and and uh, uh, so on the risk taking. See, uh, my financial risk appetite is like one hundredth of yours, <laughs> uh, but my intellectual risk appetite is much higher. Mm, right. And so I'm, I'm happy to go wrong uh, uh, because I'm learning, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I've had terrible calls. Right. Right. So uh, I've made, like you know, uh, two thousand twenty, I did this study on global calorie count and global food. Demand and supply, mm-hmm. and my conclusion was that uh, the world is going to be surplus in food. Yeah. And guess what? I mean, after that, for the next two years, there was a massive run in food prices on the upside. Right, right. Uh, I still think I'm right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I timed it badly, right. but uh, I don't. I don't. Uh, uh, I'm not too harsh on myself. I, I still ask asking why I got it wrong. But, uh, but yeah, I, I want to take intellectual risk. I want to solve bigger and bigger problems.
1: And when you take this intellectual risk or make forecasts about future, you take short-term horizon which are in 1, 2, 3 years or longer-term which are 5, 10 even longer? See, uh, finally, and, and that brings us to
0: this basic question of uh, who can do research. Mm. So as, as you must have uh, seen, I mean, there have been people estimating that you know, to, to support a physicist whose work is not commercially viable for 30, 40, 50 years, right. Uh, you need at least a 100,000 strong population, Mm. right? So people have to grow food. So people, you know, somewhat like us, we are in the privileged position that we sort of, you know, read, write, pontificate. We don't have to do real work, right? Uh, And uh, so when you're thinking about research, you have to be very clear on who's paying for it. Uh, And uh, so throughout history, I think people have had this challenge um, which is why you know the priests would get attached to the kings uh, or businesses um, and and make compromises right okay. so um, uh, so 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 one of the reasons why I love doing what I do in my job uh, and I've stuck at it for so long is that there's no other place where I get paid to read and write and pontificate the slight compromise there is that i need to be useful to the clients of the firm mm-hmm. So it cannot be five or ten years right mm-hmm. right so i I have opinions on five or ten years, but in my writings, it has to be one year, two year,
1: three, year. understood, so your output is more geared towards particular objective or the constitution that you are serving your professional job. but when you're reading you're reading you know history of thousand, two thousand years, yeah. you can't stop yourself also thinking about in the salme and and you know, and what I've
0: found is and uh, what is quite fascinating is that once you start getting some confidence on the medium term mm-hmm. trends and You have a narrative which is starting to get tested and it's starting to play out. Uh, You find that a lot of people need that, uh, right? So if you're planning a factory, Mm. in the financial markets, people can't see beyond their nose, right, Right. mostly. Uh, But when you're planning a factory, you're thinking about 15 years. Right. And you need that perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so what I'm realizing is that as I have learned more, as, as I have, Accumulated more grey hair, uh, and I'm starting to connect with uh, a lot of senior decision makers. Mm. That even my forecast horizon mm. uh, uh, is, is starting to expand. Right, and, which is a very privileged position to right. me.
1: Absolutely, you know, I can relate to your privileged position because say, I've had one dilemma. You know, in this, I've been entrepreneurship, trying to build companies and products, sell something to somebody, and you know, generate return for investment, All of that, but I feel you know somewhere the appeal of an academic life has always been there, yeah. you know, you get to just study, think, contemplate, go for long walks, and that's just, uh, you know, something I can only imagine. But you have figured out that in a professional career, where, you know, you produce the output you produce, but yet you have, you know, created both a need and the window in your life to really think deeply about topics.
0: Yes, and, and you know, I have been fortunate that the firms that I've worked with, or at least uh, two firms that I've worked with mm-hmm. in the last 20 years, uh, have been very supportive of right. that. In, in the sense that, uh, you know, and, and I've also thought about this uh, acad- academics as mm. a profession, right? See, the problem with academics, not chal- not problem, mm. the challenge with academics yeah. is also that, you know, this innate need for humans to build hierarchies mm. means that um, it is not as objective, uh as it would appear from afar. Mm, right. Right. So so that lure I've had as well, that, you know, was drop all right. this. I mean anyway my, my my expenses are not very high. Why do I need to keep working in the financial right. services industry? But uh I don't think it is it is the, the independence and the freedom that I have. And see and the, the thing that in in academics you'll have to become a super specialist mm. in one area. Correct. Now what I'm doing is kind of a selfish thing that I'm using the, the yeah. knowledge earned by people who are doing field trials, right. deep studies, and then, like, you know, to, for every narrative on history, there is some archaeologist who is spending 6 years, 5 years, 10 years, just, you know, right. using a brush to uh, uncover a shard of pottery yeah. and then make interpretations on that, right? So, uh, do I want to do that? Um, I'm I'm too much of a intellectual butterfly to to actually yeah,
1: but basically you're trying to say that <laughs> academic <laughs> yeah. life, you know, this quaint life, you know. Yeah. You are just thinking about, but it requires navigating the academic politics, also intense superstar focus, one topic for years or maybe even decades, right? Yeah. You know, yeah life is very finite, and unfortunately our age started to look even more finite. Sure. Which reminds me England, you know, our generation is probably quite unique in a way, where we kind of grew up in the pre-liberalization era. And we were old enough, 15, 16 by the time. So we still have very clear memories. Like yeah. one of the memories I have is my father at some point, he wanted to buy a scooter. I think 85, you know, I was 10-year-old. <laughs> so he <laughs> scooter an application for the I know. And every year, people know that maybe the application is growing up. And then in a scooter <laughs> It was a big event. Yeah, yeah. That the whole a scooter is coming are just to buy one, know, that's man. the era we grew up in 19 1991 things start changing I mean I have a very superficial understanding that liberalization started. but I would love to understand you know how your perspective on what like you know what things started to change why they were changing and how you know what role that has played in you know what where we are today in India so the first is that 91 was uh,
0: you know and and when when you actually go deeper in history what you will realize is that these important years are are tools for communication mm. but the changes uh, continue to happen mm. It's just that uh, there's sometimes a breakpoint and a lot of the things right. happen at the same time which is why 91 is important but let's take a step back mm. right and let's let's start uh, with 1947 we uh, we have been looted for 150 years um
1: Only 150,
0: Uh, at least 150. Because until 1800s, I think India's global share of manufacturing was very high. Uh, There was uh, uh, maybe you can stretch it to 200, right? But you know the 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 steady outflow of wealth from India, right? um, uh, I mean, you know, so there were raiders from Afghanistan and all that that came, you know, for a while. But the rest of the country Mm. uh, was, uh, well, at least the wealth was being retained here, right? And uh, so, so your poor. uh, the infrastructure is pathetic, um, and uh, you had an immensely poor population, lots uh, so of social issues, and uh, so choices had to be made. Right, and you know, as you grow older, so when you are young, you think that you know, like I mean, Papa Gopada type, mm-hmm. you know. But so that you know, those those senior policymakers knew what they were doing. As you start reaching the age at which they were uh, when they were taking those decisions, you realize that it's not that easy. Mm. Right? You have to take big calls. Right. Uh, so they took some calls. Um, I think what India also lacked at that time, and I think that's being rectified now finally, is people who understood India. Mm. Right. If you remember, you know, 100 years back, mm. uh, more than 100 years back now, when Gandhiji first came to India, he was advised that, was don't open your mouth about India mm. till you've traveled. Right. And that is why he took that famous, you know, long journey. And then that's why he understood India. Mm. Because otherwise, it was all about Delhi and Bombay. Right. It's unfortunately still for a lot of people just about Delhi, Bombay, Bangalore, and the big five cities. Yeah. So, uh, so there was a lack of understanding of India, mm-hmm. uh, of what needed to be done. Right. There was a prevailing intellectual consensus, mm-hmm. uh, and remember that what happens in the world because see there are very few people who are paid to study economics. Right. Correct. And and uh, those people then sometimes have. Uh, undue influence on how policy making happens um, and and it is still a primitive field mm. right it, is, it has come a long way right but it is still a very primitive field uh it is where medicine was perhaps two hundred years back so um, um so I think some decisions were made um, and uh those decisions over the next ten fifteen years did not play out mm. uh, then there was a big swing to the left in the late sixties mm. uh, that was It was partly political because, um, actually maybe mostly political, that the after that, the left outside of, you know, two two states just lost out, right, because uh, the the Congress shifted sharply to the left Mm -hmm. and uh, sort of usurped that political position. Now, I think by the late 70s, early 80s, uh, the policymakers had figured out that it was not working uh, and a slow relaxation had started. So, you will see... A lot of the reforms had started happening in the 80s itself. Uh, in fact, in, in economic, uh, I mean, v- very top-down thinking, if you think about uh, economic growth, it can be split into uh, three big parts, right? So if you think about like my, like my research department, right? Uh, if I have to improve the output of my research department, it is like improving the output of the country, which is the gross domestic product. right? I can add more research analysts, Mm -hmm. I can double the number of research analysts, if they are as productive as the others ones, then the the output doubles up. I can add capital input, so instead of getting them to uh, sort of aggregate data through whatever it means, I just get them access to some database provider. Add Jeopardy license. Yes. So so in a way... uh, <laughs> no, that won't work. There's too much of hallucination for, for uh <laughs> but 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 the the uh, so that's capital input, right? So you give them faster computers, you give them access to more databases, and their output goes up. Yeah. The third, which is a smarter way to do it, is to get them to work better together. Mm. It's called total factor productivity. Mm. So there is labor input, there's capital input, and there is TFP. So if you split the growth between these three, um, TFP growth is about learning to work better, hmm. right? Learning to use capital input better, uh, labor input better. And so if you plot the five year annualized growth, because year on year there's a lot of work, our TFP bottomed out in the mid to late 70s. From early 80s onwards, it has steadily been going up. Because see, what happens is if you take all the capital and the labor and give it in the hands of uh, people whose incentives are not aligned to growth, right, they're aligned to just staying in power or exercising power or feeling happy that, you know, I'm sort of the boss of whatever 500 people, uh, the productivity drops, which is something that I think China is struggling with as well, right. So, so since the time that I think the state started to uh, feel threatened by by uh, private sector and uh, uh, ownership started to shift, Um their TFP between 2005 to 2014, 2019 has been negative. Right. Right. It has been falling. So India, I think, at that time the changes had started. Right. 91 was when I think a lot of the thoughts that had been circulating mm. in 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 policy making circles in Delhi for close to a decade um, suddenly got implemented. Got it. Because the political leadership. So remember that you know being the being the ruler of a country, just staying the ruler mm. is hard work right doing something while you're the ruler of the country requires uh, a lot of mental bandwidth, uh, a lot of political risk appetite because you know implementing change yeah. is so hard right. and, and and so there's a lot of uncertainty mm-hmm. but when there is no other option mm. and uh, uh, you know you run out of dollars and there's a lot of change that right. needs to happen, you have to uh, you have to do it so ninety one is when Things really swung in a certain way. Uh, I don't think they swung fully by then, right? So this is a process which kept happening over the next 15, 20 years. So there were several things that happened. The first was that the ownership of of businesses changed hands or started to change hands. So there was um, like you know, there were sectors which were complete monopolies uh, before that. Uh, like airlines,
1: mm. both private and public
0: monopolies, or mostly public. Most mostly pu- uh, public monopolies, right? So private monopolies were, I think, a lot fewer, right? Uh, uh, but but public monopolies for sure, and uh, so metal production or uh, airline industry or you know who will build roads, uh, <laughs> media. So. Uh, and you can see telecom so you can see how uh, in each of these sectors like you know the delhi mumbai flight fare is the same as I, that it was in 93 wow i didn't know that right mm-hmm. it is and and uh, you look at until till this bs6 transition the the cost of a two wheeler mm-hmm. the price of a two wheeler right. is more or less the same I, mean, I remember when i was in infosys in 2000 i bought a second hand bike for 40000 rupees or something mm-hmm. uh, and uh, till 2018 19 mm-hmm. uh, two-wheeler still cost forty fifty thousand 50,000 rupees. And if you adjust for inflation, it probably costs one-fifth now. That's what I'm saying. So, so what happens is that as you open up the economy to competition, and everyone then gets under pressure to work, right, um, and, and, and be smart, and, and there is a very natural culling of the inefficient businesses. Uh, it may not be inefficient people, but you know, just that the way they organize doesn't work, so right. then they get weeded out. Mm. And um, so that process really accelerated. So what happened was, not just that in many sectors, the state's monopoly was, was dismantled and therefore the private sector started entering, but it was also that external barriers were brought down. So there was a plethora of import duties. Mm. So first they said, no, we are not going to have like, you know, whatever, 500 levels of import duties. We are just going to have, say, five rates mm. or four rates and then progressively every and see, remember that if you open up too fast you create problems. So it's like, you know, uh, when someone is being rehabilitated, uh, you start doing slowly, right? So, uh, so, you, so you you So had this process where you'll see the weighted average import duties kept falling. Uh, income taxes uh, kept falling because if you don't have any incentive to, to generate income, why will you work? I don't remember what was the income tax like in 90s? So uh in this in the 70s very infamously there was a 97% marginal tax rate 97% yeah uh, in in the 70s uh so it it was in the high 40s so uh, the high 40s uh, at that time uh, 97 98 was when the 30% kind of rates started to come through so the uh uh indirect taxes as well right so 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 you'll see that the tax rates started coming down and and uh, so there was more incentive less friction um, I, I think the the dependence on government for approvals mm. uh, was was has slowly been uh, brought down. There is still too much that the government does. So for example, mm. uh, you know, I think railways after a long time is starting to see, uh, other than the unfortunate accident that happened, that is clear signs of change in railways. There's a lot mm. of uh, positive, but it's still a state monopoly. Right. Um, and uh, if you remember, I mean, one of the more unfortunate uh things that we had to go through was when we traveled by train uh was that trains would be uh late by 12 hours 15 hours 20 hours oh, late on a shuru that's a limit new disco limit new or uh well, pani uh, toilets are dirty um uh, there's so many people um and i was uh, uh, this is too funny not to share so in in taiwan so what happened was my uh Wife was uh, traveling from Patna to Forbesganj where, mm. uh, where she grew up. And the only way to do it, or rather the, the only uh, reasonable way to do it, was to take an overnight bus. Mm. So, uh, and what happened was because in between there was no cell phone network. Mm. And I was in Taipei and I was fretting that she had not reached. So, my colleague saw. Uh, In Taiwan, and said, uh, So, why didn't she take a flight? Mm. Said, Okay, let's think about it this way. All of Bihar, with now about 12, 13 crore people, had one airport, Mm. uh, Patna, right? And so, you land at Patna and then go wherever you want, you have to, right? Said, Okay, so why didn't she take the train? Mm. I said, Well, there's no train, (laughs) right? Uh, Oh, but no private cars? It's too unsafe. Uh, so, you had to only go by bus and the, the road was so bad that the bus broke down. Mm. So, we have become so used to like, you know, railways, right. because it is a monopoly, mm. uh, you know, dirty trains and all of that. Now, the moment some private competition comes, so there are there are certain things which I think need to be public utilities, Yeah, um, but uh, at, at this giant scale. So, I think uh, if you go back to that first question, over a period of time, as the state monopoly on various sectors has been dismantled. Uh, uh, I think the government control has been eased um, and our distrust of private capital mm. has come down.
1: So, Neelkan, my recollection is roughly in the last 30 years, I think in the ni- early 90s, our economy is around $200 billion or so. It's grown more than 10x. I think we've maintained that 6 to 7% range pretty much throughout this entire 30 years despite you know many changes and so on which has kind of compounded over the last, you know, 30 years, and we are now, you know, three plus trillion dollar economy, and aspiring, depending on time horizon, aspiring for 10 or 20, or even more, right, in coming decades. What are the, some of the big things, you know, which is like, what has fundamentally changed in India, compared to, if you compare, just take, you know, early 90s, let's say the window of India of that time, to India of now, what are all the things that are working, which are, you know, driving this engine forward, where, whatever happens, I think we, tend to grow in 6 to 7%. I don't know anybody thinks that, you know, growth that will slow down below 6%, 7% plus will be amazing. But what are those things which are really starting to work for India and are working, not here and now, but just being, you know, have emerged as a steady trend in favor of, you know, what is creating this, you know, favorable situation for the country?
0: Yeah, so that, um, I think, has many drivers, and which is what, see, we have to always remember that India is the sixth of humanity. Right, right. We are I'm tired of people saying, why can't we be like Singapore? We can't be like right. Singapore, right? Singapore is like the other,
1: hmm. right? I mean, <laughs> it,
0: uh, so you, uh, you can improve the other if you give them complete monopoly and all of that, but, uh, but I don't think uh, that's practical. So, uh, so we are a sixth of humanity. So it has to be a whole range of drivers. It cannot be one, right? So, um, so the first and I think most important is that this, this whole assessment that I've had that you know progress comes in layers. Hmm. You build something, build on top of that, build on top of that. You know, and, and you keep doing that, right? You cannot stop. Uh, so, the first, I think, was was just uh, when I think about, you know, integrating a large part of India into the economy. You know, one of the most uh, important takeaways for me from my Hindustan Lever training was this rural stint we had in ETA, you yeah. uh, know, Bundelkhand. Of the many things we learned there, I mean, I've been to villages, I've been to very poor villages, but, you know, when you go to a village and you're you're from a land-owning family, you are privileged, and dadi khana and all that, you know, but when you're living with them, right, um, you, you learn different things, you realize that they could have been living in any country. They had no idea who the prime minister was, they had no idea who the chief minister was, because there were no road, because I'm talking 98, right, and uh, uh, so no roads, no electricity, no TV, Uh, and I don't think their lives had changed for several hundred years, Mm -hmm. right? Just the tax collector had changed. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is, and remember that in the year 2000, 54% of India's habitations did not have all-weather road connectivity.
1: 50%.
0: Yeah. Can you believe that, uh, and the states that were prosperous at that time, Haryana, Punjab, Kerala, they had hundred uh, percent habitation connected. So, if half of your habitations have no way of connecting with the economy, how can you grow? And where are we today in terms of this habitation connectivity? 95, 96 percent depends. So now, what they have done is that the two thousand plus habitations are now fully connected. Right. They've gone to thousand. I think at five hundred habitation level, maybe there is few percent still. So there. that's
1: a sea change. You know, basically, remaining half of the. Population has been connected. uh, Basically, 10% of humanity has been connected over the last 20 years. Yes. And uh,
0: uh, maybe 23, 24 years, right? So, uh, because 2000, I think, was when the Rahan Mantri Gram Sadak Yojana was launched. Right. And uh, I remember uh, that in our village, uh, we didn't have electricity till the road finally came. And uh, there were several attempts made to bring electricity to the village. Mm. But you can't do that till you have a road. Correct. Suppose the transformer burns or someone just snips some wire. How will the engineer go and test? Mm-hmm. So you, the first step to getting anything else is to get the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have the road, suddenly the labor rates start going up because it's so much easier to travel nearby. And then suddenly uh, uh, the labor market becomes more efficient. Mm-hmm. Perishable vegetables, milk starts moving out and education, health all start moving in maternal mortality uh, drops infant mortality drops right so there are many important changes that happen once you just build that last mile rural road, road begs the question why wasn't this done earlier right but we can we can discuss that in maybe the next question once you have this and then the electrification starts so uh, you have uh, even in the 2011 census one third of india's households did not have wires going into their houses. See, we are not talking about houses that had wires, how many hours of electricity they had, right? I remember uh, uh, when I was presenting to the board of a very large consumer company on my silent transformation report of 2013 at how roads, electricity and phones are changing. India, uh, he said, what will I do with them? Right? Because you can't build brands, so then how can you, uh, can you sell? And so there was no, so even if the, the houses that had electricity or uh, the wires going, they, they did not have sufficient electricity. Uh, but you know, once you get electricity, see, if you, if you think of uh, human civilization, it's all about energy. Mm. Right? So, it's so right from the thing that we digest our food outside our bodies. Mm. Yeah. So, so, we need cooking. In fact, as, as uh, Vaklav Smil writes in Energy and Civilization, that the size of a medieval European city was determined by the size of the forest around it, Mm -hmm. because he needed wood for cooking, he needed wood for making bricks, for smelting iron, and a lot of other things, warming, heating. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't have access to dense sources of energy, how will you grow? Mm -hmm. So, uh, there's this fascinating uh, uh, story about uh, this American president growing in 1930s rural uh, Texas, and so every woman there had a hunched shoulder. His, he won his first election, saying that you will stop looking like your mother. Wow. I will bring electricity because they had. To, Johnson. Yeah, you had to pull water out of the right. uh, uh, of the of the of the well. You have to do. Manual cleansing of laundry, and you know, so lots of other things that they had to do manually.
1: 1930 was just 100 years ago. It's today's impossible to imagine in America, yeah, not too distant past. Agreed, it was very similar to what you're describing, is how you know life has been in many Indian villages until recently. Correct, Uh, and and
0: now, so electricity, once it starts spreading, common. You know, you would know and I, I mean, you, you would have grown up the way, same, same way I did All our masala was cooked uh, or, or was, was ground on the, silod loda, you know, that was uh, mortar pestle, right? right. Uh, and today in rural Bihar, mm. in the poorest of households, people are using mixer grinders. Mm. That's huge productivity growth, yeah. right? Uh, piped water connections, right? Mm. Uh, imagine walking five hours or, 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 you know, five kilometers to, to fetch water. And imagine
1: washing clothes, washing your hands, taking a bath, cooking, yeah. with, uh, with buckets. Yeah, see, on this point, I have to mention, it seems very theoretical, at least those of us are in you know, Bangalore, Mumbai, Delhi, but in uh, a place I grew up in Haridwar, there water you know. Some major pipe has burst, per, nahi hai. And you literally have to, you know, we as children, will, everyone was given a bucket, you have to walk two kilometers, and yeah. a yeah. tanker aega, Absolutely. We have done that. We've done yeah. all that. And uh, एक, uh, And I'm talking Bukaro, which
0: was a, you know one of the better managed townships. Or Usme I remember with my father painting the inside of that, that yeah. you know, large tank where the water would be kept. Uh, uh, and uh, think about energy. I mean, I have seen my mother uh, because usme, yeah. kerosene And we were middle class family, we are not poor families, right? My father was an engineer. Yeah. and Usme Toela, Datu, then she would then put layers of mud on the stove correct. and then start cook our food. Yeah. Correct. Right?
1: correct
0: Such a waste of time, right yeah, right. And, and so electricity came.
1: yeah.
0: then, then phones came. Hmm. right. And uh, here we have, I think, been privileged by global innovations uh, which brought down the cost of a phone, right. And um, you would have read about that famous study in, in Kerala in 2007, right? how yeah. that, that fish prices, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. that those things, uh, and labor is the most perishable commodity. Mm-hmm. People talk about fish, labor is most perishable. Mm-hmm. You spend three hours looking for a job, you've not worked for three hours. Yeah. And uh, so suddenly, uh, when the phones started going up, right, so till 2008, remember, teledensity in rural India was 10%. Ninety mm-hmm. percent of the people had no access to phones, right? And uh, uh, it jumped up to fifty-five percent mm-hmm. by two thousand thirteen, fourteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it has stagnated at sixty percent, right? So it, I think needs to go up. Maybe the BSNL, the new launches that we are mm-hmm. we are seeing at right, the four G right. expansion, it will, it will mobile phone penetration still stuck at sixty percent. Rural, rural R- tele density. Okay, sixty percent, but. Right. I, need, I whether it should be 100% or not is a different question altogether, right, mm. because, you know, should, should all adults have right. um, a phone or not, or should all kids have phone or right. not, you know, so mm. those, are, those are different questions, but the point is that it was very low in 2008 and suddenly by 2014, right. and the whole point was, if you think about it from a telecom uh, company's perspective, if you are running a telecom tower on gensets, mm. it's not viable, Right? you need regular electricity, correct. Now, once you have all of this, then suddenly you are building new and fascinating layers, Mm. right? Like Jandhan Yojana, The nationalization of banks that started uh, or happened in the 60s and 70s was all to drive rural penetration of banks. Mm. But how do you do rural penetration of banks uh, or improve the rural penetration of banks if it is so expensive to do banking? Right. Right, So, someone had done a study a decade back, I'm sure costs are different now, that per transaction in a bank branch, uh, it cost the bank 70 rupees. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure it was you know, varied over uh, banks and branches, but per ATM transaction at that time was 17, 18 rupees, right. and mobile transaction was 1 or 2 rupees. Assume that you go to the bank branch once a month, mm-hmm. you're costing the bank 700 rupees. Assuming that the net interest margin for a bank is, say, 4%, right? right? So, you need at least uh, uh, 18,000 rupees mm-hmm. in average savings
1: yeah.
0: for your account to be viable, mm. right? How many people have right. that? Mm. Now, till you could do one rupee per transaction or a fraction of a rupee per transaction, it, it was impossible to give everyone bank accounts. Mm. That was only possible through mobile phones, right? Mm. Right. and so, so you build roads, you build electricity, that provides productivity boost in a lot of places, then you add phones, then you have bank accounts. Right. Suddenly, the efficiency of the state mm-hmm. has gone up dramatically. Right. Right. So, the direct benefits transfer, the leakages. And remember, this is also, uh, this is something, a subject which I am not an expert in, I am not a sociologist or a political, that way I am not even an economist, but at least I have studied economics a bit. Uh, that... Uh, you know, the, the formation of the country, was the, if the only time the state reaches out to you is when it has to harass you,
1: <laughs> right.
0: is a bad way to build a country. Right. But if you, as a citizen, start getting direct transfers into your account,
1: mm.
0: that your house can be made paka, Right. that, uh, oh, there is COVID happening, so let's take 1000 rupees, right? Um, or the food comes to you directly and all that, right? So I think these are very important ways in which you build a country. And build a nation
1: right so lot of what you're saying this last 30 years a lot of these foundational elements layer by layer have gotten built and then the entire you know 1.4 billion population right. in some ways connected to the larger economy and starting to be productive starting to definitely get information contribute you know benefit from it and that's kind of that big foundation layer is set
0: yes now uh, there is a second big transformation that is happening so this is what i call the micro infrastructure right right and Remember that micro infrastructure is not fully done yet hmm. in the sense that India's broadband connection is still pathetic,
1: hmm.
0: right? Um, the reason why our mobile data uh, consumption, uh, uh, average mobile data consumption is the highest in the world because there is no broadband and no Wi-Fi, right? And I think going from single digits to 30-40% in the next 5-7 years will again transform India. And that is happening? If that is happening. I think that is well underway because see uh, what has happened, the first step to doing that, and it's, a, it's a political problem. The reason why cables could not be laid was because that is how local territories are mapped by the mm. goons. Yeah. Right. If you, I don't know if you you would remember that, but I have only just figured out well a couple of years back that the reason why the gundas in the in the vicinity in the locality ran the cable TV network was well, it was actually about hard physical capture. Mm. Right. Right. No one else would be allowed in. Mm. Because you're talking about territory right. control. Correct. Right. So so anyway, so those things I think are starting to happen. Mm. The second step is is uh, 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 macro infrastructure, yeah. which is uh, national highways, mm. expressways. Right. You know, even 10 years back, yeah. I would not have imagined that India will be building like sixteen, seventeen thousand 17,000 kilometers of highways every year. And when you ask uh, people who are involved in the industry, they will say, look, this is still four-laning, six-laning of existing alignments. Mm-hmm. Wait till the expressways come up. Right, right. So the the famous Bangalore-Mysore expressway that we were discussing the other day, um, Delhi-Chandigarh in two hours, yeah. Delhi-Mumbai in twelve hours, and these are remarkable.
1: I, mean, I think this is one example of you know silent revolution. I just want to say 16,000-17,000 kilometers every year. That is, from you know Kashmir to Kanyakumari is about three thousand, three thousand five hundred kilometers, and width wise about twenty five hundred kilometers, right? So imagine like going up and down, up and down four times yes. every year. And when over 10 years in this kind of infrastructure, crisscrossing the whole country, I think the unlock that enables for the economy is going to be incredible. Incredible. And, uh, and, uh, and now we are
0: starting to become more ambitious. Mm-hmm. Right? So one lakh crore project yeah. being envisaged in 2017 18 right. the Delhi-Mumbai uh, uh, Expressway, and being executed in five years. Right. And everyone is excited. The trucking companies are excited. The truck financing companies are excited. Right. The logistics companies are excited. Manufacturing companies start getting excited, right? Uh, I, I'll, I'll give you, I mean, it will sound like a digression, but it's very important that you know the Delhi-Mumbai infrastructure corridor, the DMIC, the dedicated freight corridor, basically, uh, industrial corridor and, uh, and the freight corridor that is coming up is, uh, uh, so I was wondering that on this Delhi-Mumbai route, uh, who will benefit, hmm. right? Because now the f- the the rail freight costs are going to fall very sharply. Right. The road freight costs are going to fall yeah. very sharply. Who's going to win? Yeah. Manufacturers. Hmm. Right now, you need to be very close to the ports right. to be able to manufacture. Hmm. Suddenly, the whole of the hinterland opens right. up. Yeah. Right? So, I think the macro infrastructure, uh, uh, the changes that are happening, like, you know, Delhi, say, Mumbai, Nagpur, uh, mm-hmm. Delhi, Chandigarh, Delhi, Deradun, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in, 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 these are, Incredible shifts. You know, the fact that from my remote village in Bihar, mm-hmm. I start at 10 a.m. and I'm back uh, in my Mumbai house in, in seven and a half hours
1: mm-hmm. is absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Right? So and, and so this this is I think very important. Um, can you touch upon what has enabled this, right? Because you know, to be able to execute one lakh crore project, you need capital. You also need a lot, you know, there's so many different states that need to in some ways participate. You also need to have a long term because you know highway can't be built in one year. You start the project now; it may take seven, eight years, ten years, and before it is fully commissioned, the so how is it starting to happen, which was not happening. It's a very, very, very
0: important question, and I'm I'm glad you asked it. Uh, the first step here is ambition. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are a startup king, so you would know that you need to. Startup without mission becomes. is made. No, no, it's not as you're trivializing it. But um, so, so you need to have a vision. It was this taraf jaana hai, right? Ah, like 98 when the Golden Quadrilateral was unveiled. So, if you read uh, 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 Mr. N K Singh's book about this whole episode, how it came about, right? right. So, Vandley uh, Atal ji, the PM at that time, had to give a speech right. at Fiji hmm. and he said, uh, so he asked someone to write a speech, the speech went and he said, I hmm. So it said, so I, so then says, I started saying, our ah, ah, time, hmm. So then this happened, ki chalo ek hum log, bade High waisted. right that speech was given a couple of months later atal in his classic style says and uh, to engaging goshna karwa and banwa bhi Right. like so he writes it beautifully right so uh, uh, and then uh, this whole i mean I plan to, hai,
1: to
0: uh, at that time india had no road construction companies hmm. right and uh, these were very long projects, right. and uh, so they said, okay, let's divide it into 200-kilometer stretches, hmm. and then let's qualify companies that have built it, right? right. So, there were four companies, four construction companies only yeah. that qualified, the, and even they were saying, <laughs> <ga> de <laughs> uh, Imagine that right.
1: they could not handle projects larger than- saying no business, because yeah. just didn't have a capability or- Yes, aware with all, yeah. And they had never done
0: it. Hmm. Imagine, today we are building 40, 50 kilometers a day. 40, 50 kilometers a day. This is (laughs) 18,000 by 360. So, and so what has happened over the last 25 years is that um, I think the balance sheets, the risk appetite, the ability to manage scale of many of these companies has improved dramatically. Uh, But the first step was the ambition, right? Right. Uh, and and then that ambition has been regularly scaled up. Like when the, the, the Delhi Mumbai Expressway was being planned, f- we all are RAR "Yar, Right? And uh, but it happened. And and so what has also happened is I think the system has learned how to solve problems. Mm. Right? So land improvement how do you acquire land at mm. that scale? Yeah. Um, how do you uh, 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 handle? Uh, issues of masjid hai, you know so all of that uh how do you handle, right? Yeah. And without creating ruckus, without you know creating disturbance for, for a lot of people. Uh, and uh I think
1: so the system has learned. The yeah, companies when are built we talk about system, is you know are we also able to leverage the whole Indian bureaucratic system a lot better because you know given IAS, UPSC and etc, some of the really talented people go into that. Yes. because these are not Easy projects, you know, commissioning so much land, negotiating, executing, delivering on timelines. So
0: one of the things that I think has been very important, and this is something people in the government will tell you, mm. is that the the success of NHAI, the National Highway Authority of India, is the fact that it still has only one thousand people. No, oh. everything is privatized.
1: Mm. Okay,
0: right. So so that's the right structure, mm. I think. Right. That uh, the state controls the the contracting. Mm. the 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 tooling rates right. and you know the how much returns you can make and all of that but beyond that everything mm. even creation of detailed project reports is to a large extent privatized so uh so that allows because you know then you're you're
1: making people compete and force them to be efficient so really lean organization lean organization yeah, i'm not thinking your surname that's to stop
0: these are private firms right so um, in private firms there is naturally the owner the, the the person whose capital is at risk will enforce this will happen in at the state level uh, the states uh, first tendency is to stay in power to exercise power right and therefore i think it's prudent to to make it lean um, and and outsource as much as right. possible right I, it is not wise i think to outsource everything right. because uh, basic infrastructure uh, uh purely in private hands is also very bad right uh, but but i think Uh, from an execution perspective, this has also helped. Uh, I think uh, big changes are starting to happen in railways, which is very important, right? So uh, two-thirds of India's freight should be moving on railways like it does in many other countries. Uh, It it has been only falling one way for 75 years. Uh, Last two years, we've seen a bit of an increase. Um, uh, And and my uh, uh, advice always is that, look, we are doing. We were doing two lakh crores, two trillion rupees of capex uh, in railways every year. My advice was, we should be doing ten lakh crores, ten lakh crores every year, every year, uh, because you need that capacity, right? So uh, uh, you need, uh, you know, and this is the most green way. And so think about it from a big picture perspective, yeah. right? That. A lot of the energy used because talking about energy and civilization, right? Uh, and uh, you, if you have to, if you have to move faster, uh, you have to use energy. Right. Because there's only certain. I mean, however fast you may run, you can't run yeah. only. You know, only that fast. Uh, when you're using energy, it is important to use energy that you have. Right. Because the problem with roads is that the energy currently, at least, that we are using on roads um, is all important. Hmm. The only form in which domestically produced energy can be consumed is electricity. Because of? Well, because okay. we have solar, we have coal, right. and they cannot be used directly. So, you have to use it in right. the form of electricity. Railways gives you that option. Mm. So, I think we need to do railways. And I think the good thing is that this year, the railways budget is 3 lakh crores. Mm. Uh, significant progress in electrification, right. uh, I think track lane, um, freight planning. I think there's logistics planning. What is the
1: freight cost uh, delta between rails and, and road? I think...
0: Uh, I'll have to. Okay. I'll have to. Uh, but it is. It is definitely much lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, I think water is even lower. Right. But uh, that's another thing that. But you know, we have big navigable rivers and we should be using. So one of the right.
1: things again, I don't know the numbers exactly, but I think like to like, I believe logistics in India, you know, compared to size of the economy, is on the higher side. It's, it's
0: very things. high. So it's it's very is, it is constantly th- cost to th- move stuff. Thirteen, fourteen percent, whereas it should be eight, nine percent. Right. So, so but that cost is as, as I was saying. You know, so now if if there are uh, roads and railways are going to be
1: competing yeah. for the Delhi-Mumbai traffic, right. cost will come down. Right. And that will have, again, a significant impact on the economy because that basically all the businesses will save that much cost, which can go into capex, which can go into yes. improve bottom line, etc., and Correct. makes it more attractive investment destination. And uh, so if you're a, if you're a
0: uh, uh, say foreign manufacturer uh, operating or wanting to produce in India, your uh, uh, w- you were forced to produce, or you were earlier would have been forced to produce close to the port. Right now, you can use the cheap labor of UP or, mm-hmm. or or Haryana right. uh, to produce there, uh, and then ship it over over you know thirteen fourteen hours. Amazing. So that's the macro infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I think uh, a, a very important change is access to capital, hmm. because you know if you can only invest yeah. twenty million dollars. Mm-hmm. How much ROC right. or how much return on capital employed can you right. get on that, yeah. right? And uh, so, just like you know, say if say UP has a trillion dollar GDP target, mm. they are give or take two fifty billion dollars right now. Right. Seven fifty billion dollars of uh, additional mm. annual income has but to that, be created. Yeah. Even if you assume twenty five percent return on capital employed, which is phenomenal yeah. returns, yeah. right? Yeah. You need three trillion dollars of investment. Mm-hmm. Now, this will happen over five years. It doesn't happen in one year or five years or ten years or whatever. Uh, so, it doesn't happen, have to happen immediately. But you need large amounts of capital. The state does not have it. Yeah. Uh, the center does not have mm. it. Not enough, that is. Yeah. Uh, so, so, the private sector has to do it.
1: Can you, in a very simple way, explain what is return on capital employed? We'll have a lot of younger people probably watching this podcast. So, make simple. They say, how should I visualize it?
0: See, when you have a business, yeah. uh, You you suppose invest uh, ten crores into a business. It could be invested in fixed capital, which Mm -hmm. is you created a factory, bought some machines, and it could be created in working capital, which is you know inventory, receivables, and you know. So total investment is ten crores. Now, at an operating profit level, if you are making two and a half thousand rupees, your ROC is two and a half crores. uh, Your ROC is is twenty-five percent. So, there's a total investment, capital employed, which is fixed capital plus working capital. And on that is the operating profit. Super clear.
1: Yeah. So, you're saying, talking about
0: the access to capital is bigger. So, access to capital. So, now, uh, uh, so you need a lot of capital to grow. Yeah. Now, when you and I exited college, uh, the only way to get capital of any form, because there are two forms of capital, right? So, there's debt capital, and there's equity capital, which is loans and, and shares. Now. The only way to get capital at that time was to go bribe a branch manager. Yes. Yeah. right, because there's all PSU banks. Mm. In fact, banking is another sector mm. where, where productivity has gone up dramatically. Mm. Right. right, and and because the state control was eased, yeah. private banks came in, and a lot of other things happened. Now, in the last twenty years, uh, uh, two very big problems have been solved. Mm. So let's start with the loan side. Yeah, the problem with loans or the challenge with loans, is that the evaluation process, uh, if it is very expensive, it requires, uh, uh, it becomes viable only for very large-ticket loans, mm. Right, right. So, so if the number of hours that a chartered accountant or some trained bank employee has to spend in evaluating a loan, uh, it, it means that it costs, say, 2,000 rupees to evaluate a loan, there is no way that you can give a 20,000 rupee loan, right. Okay. right, because 10% is the markup and then the loan becomes unviable. Right. Now, the problem in a country like India, which has low per capita wealth and a very large number of entrepreneurs, see, we've never been short of entrepreneurs, okay. right, the whole communities right. uh, which are in the business of business, right, and uh, the problem was capital. It is. It is possible to give, it is feasible to give a one crore loan, but not many people want a one crore loan. Right. They wanted one lakh rupee loan, five lakh rupee loan. Correct. So with the advent of technology mm. and this creation of data, uh, we are starting to see the loan ticket sizes starting to fall. Mm. Um, because now algos are taking those decisions. Right. And the good thing is, and so there will be a weeding out, right? So some algos will go wrong, some companies will go belly up. Yeah. But over a period of time, the loan ticket sizes are starting to move up from 10,000 to 20,000 to 50,000 to 1 lakh. And uh, that's remarkable, right? Uh, equity capital. Uh, so, see, the, the, the RARA markets of 2020 2021, uh, lots of bad behavior, lots of irresponsible investing. Uh, but what it did was, it's like, you know, the, the force of water. Uh, It creates new plumbing channels. Every large Indian city now has an angel investing club. So you may not need 5 crores or 10 crores which a VC wants to give you because in in initial stages, you don't even know what you're going to do with that. You need 15 lakhs, 20 lakhs, and that's angel investing. Now, those pipes didn't exist, right? So, uh, and, and compared to the US, which, you know, where, you know, the VC industry started in the 60s, uh, this is a place um, where uh, uh, this capital has never been available, and it is not because the savings were not there. Right. Right. So there are always rich businessmen in every community where you know they're kind of parking it under their mattress or buying gold or yeah. buying real estate. Now they're realizing that if this thing works, right. and there's so much transformation. Right. Yeah. We just discussed data yeah. uh, uh, collectivity, the desire for brands, right. uh, all kinds of new businesses right. uh, need to come yeah. up. And uh, you can get much higher returns. So I think uh, uh, it is important to realize that in each year in the past decade, mm-hmm. private equity funding has exceeded public market funding. Oh. And uh, uh, it is going through a much required correction because the, these, these down cycles are a very important part of capitalism. Right. Right? Gotcha. So you weed out the inefficient guys. Uh, but when I see the next 10 years, it is right. It's a higher ups and higher lows. And... Uh, so this is another, I think, big transformation. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Maybe
1: think. just to add to that, right, because this is a part of the ecosystem I that have you understand? watched from the front lines. In 2007, when I moved back to India, hmm. at that time, you know, raising even a few million dollars was kind of a pipe dream. Yes. That you million dollars, right? You know, no business no revenue no anything, right? And it's just only short 15 years. I think if my numbers are correct, almost 60 billion dollars of yep. private capital is deployed every yes, there are corrections, you know, good year, mm-hmm. bad year, but bad year with billion billion right? Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. like, you know, going to zero, right? And then average, historical average probably stay above $50 billion. Today, anyone, you know, who wants to start a company, at least you will get dozens of really good quality meetings yes. with an angel network or, or a micro VC or a VC. If you have some kind of reasonable concept, even 100 customers. You can actually aspire to raise four, or five million dollars, and chances are, if the team is good, idea is good, decent businessman, you'll get that totally. And it's all full risk capital. So I mean, uh, it's great on one hand. You know, debt is is also becoming easier and easier, especially micro loans. But equity capital also, you are, you know, you, are, you know, not um, collateralizing your house. Oh yeah. Or right, there is no personal obligation, right? Yes. You know, so it comes with it gives you so much freedom. Experiment, innovate, absolutely, and you know. So, so as they say, the uh, a lot of
0: the uh, acceleration in growth uh, in the last two, three hundred years globally was because of the start of the limited liability company, right? Right, because then the promoter's own wealth was okay. not at risk, so you allow him to create or her to create a separate entity, right. and. That entity you are investing in and so if you lose, then you lose, right? But, but nothing is happening to my personal wealth. Correct. And I think creation of that is, is starting to happen in India as well.
1: And coming from, you know, where we come from, like most of India come from saying that someone has prepared $5 billion powerpoint business plan and we expect great returns, but, nahi to nahi Koi he, you but know? Nahi. And in fact, almost failure is okay. Yes. We'll try again next time. Yeah. Think better, learn from lessons, All outstanding. Yeah, for the investor and for the entrepreneur. Right. Right, the
0: fear of failure among yeah. the young entrepreneurs is almost absent. Right, which is phenomenal. Right? Yeah. I think uh, so. Unless you have adventurers, uh, yeah. you will not see growth. Right, right. right. So, um, so I think this is this is very important. But I think there is another mm-hmm. uh, aspect to it, which is I think internal accruals. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so we are. This is we are talking about external capital. Right. And we need a lot of it. Right. So, if you are to grow faster, uh, you need a lot of foreign capital. Yeah. Um, but there's also internal accruals, mm. right? So, so, for example, when I used to be a pharma analyst, you know, the most pharma companies I covered had R&D budgets of $25-30 million. What mm. Right, right, because And this was 8-10% of their revenues. Mm. So It's not that they were right. under-investing compared to their size, but you can filing. Now these companies have $3 billion in revenue. Wow. Right? And then suddenly they're directing about 250 $300 million. And now you are hitting the, the really complex products, the high-value-add products. You look at software, right? Mm. We started with grunt work in Y2K. Correct. Right. And uh, it, it gave us inroads yeah. uh, and, and uh, helped convince people that things could happen without uh, them seeing it every day. So offshore work became more popular. And now no one wants to start a software services company. Mm. Everyone wants to do a software as a service company. Right. And so, so this important transition from pure services to more product-like uh, high-value-add yeah. stuff, I mean, we have friends who are generating 65% net margin, right? right. right. And uh, so I think the, uh, the, the aspirations have changed. Right. Um, I think the change in the ecosystem with all of this cloud computing and all of that, we were at a good place. Yeah. We have a large engineering base, people who understand software. And as foreign companies have become much more comfortable with, with India's you know, whatever protection of of intellectual property uh, uh, and 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 the sheer talent, uh, I think better quality work is starting to happen in India. You know, there are semiconductor fabs being run out of India. Right. Yeah. So so that's that's the that's the next level uh, uh, that I wanted to bring. So when you we are thinking about the next ten years, yeah. right? So we've done micro infrastructure, we've done yeah. macro infrastructure. We've talked about access to capital.
1: And, and maybe before we go to you know next ten years, I want to wanted one more critical element. So we talked about you know this younger entrepreneurs coming in, trying to, like, very ambitious, bold, taking big risks, access to capital. And they also grown up in this newer version of India. They don't know how things were in the 80s and 90s, you know, how resource constrained we were. And that aspect of the country, you know, people talk about this demographic dividend. Yeah, probably we're obviously now the largest country in the world and probably among the youngest countries in the world. How critical is that, you know, demographic dividend uh, thesis is and what role do you think that is likely to play in what is going to happen next?
0: So yeah, that was going to be my point after this one, but uh, so in terms of um, the change to working age population, um, if you just plot like, you know, UNDP the, uh, uh, or UNPD, United Nations Population Department, um, they have this population projections analysis for the next 100 years, 50 years. Uh fifty years it's 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 harder because you know, there's a lot of variation, but ten years to clear it right gotcha. all the mothers who are going to have babies and the babies who are going to grow up are all done right, right. we are, we are, we are clear there so in the next ten years uh, if you think about working age population like you know between eighteen and sixty four India is an outlier in terms mm-hmm. of growth right uh, uh China is going to shrink mm-hmm. by almost fifty million right um most European economies, Eastern Europe, they're all going to shrink. Uh, there's also growth in Africa, the so sub-Saharan mm. Africa, significant growth in sub-Saharan right. Africa. Uh, and they're not even slowing down, right? So I think they will, they will keep growing. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, parts of MENA, right? So Middle East and North Africa. Yeah. And uh, the problem is that those are also not areas where the political regime is stable yet. Yeah. So I would not write them off mm. because, you know, it's about human ingenuity and coming together and solving problems but in terms of scale in the next 10 years india is adding by far the largest number of people in the working group. Right. right so i think uh, that's another reason why uh, india is in a uh, is, is in the is being seen positively by almost everyone what is also i think very important to keep in mind is that we are at a cusp of, uh, of uh, we have already crossed uh, a very important threshold which is that Our TFR, which is the total fertility rate, Mm. has uh, come below 2.1. So, as you know, 2.1 is the sustenance rate, right? Because two parents, two kids, and there is a 5 percent of. I didn't realize we have fallen below 2.1 already. Yes, we are at 2 now. And uh, whenever this happens, the population does not stop falling, start falling the next year, right? It starts falling after 30, 40 years. Uh, But what this does is uh, in the next 30 years, at least twenty twenty five years there's going to be a surge in savings and mm. uh, productivity starts going up because what happens is and we don't I mean you have to think about it to to really appreciate it is that it takes a lot of money and effort to bring up kids mm. right and uh I mean as as parents yeah. I think I would not have it any other way <laughs> yeah yeah but 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 it is it is also right. fair to acknowledge that it is a lot of effort yeah. uh, to do that right um, now when your fertility rate starts falling yeah. or, or it falls below this threshold, the the people have more time on their hands right. and more savings. Yeah. This is the phase that Japan entered in the seventies. Mm. This is the phase that China entered in the nineties. China enters his nineties. Yeah. And finally, the effect of that are showing up now. Yes. Thirty years on the line. Yes. So, so that's exactly the point I was raising. So, so this what this means is that we have twenty twenty five years. Of a surge in domestic savings yeah uh, in, uh, in people having more time and therefore more commitment to their work and therefore the productive time starts to go up mm. or like the the, the it's not say productive time right bringing up kids is also productive time but uh, uh stuff that is counted as income and g d p mm. starts to go up right right and uh, uh so we are in that stage in the next ten years we are going to see a lot of it there are two big concerns mm. that we should. Yeah. Uh, uh, keep in mind here. Uh, the first is that once your median age crosses 40, mm. it's very hard to grow. Mm. Right? Uh, I'm not talking about individual ages and people grow young and old. Actually. Hard for GDP to grow or? Yes. Okay. Or grow, accelerate or grow very rapidly after mm. that because the 40 year, um, because, you know, then after that, you know, you do not need better houses, bigger houses, you know, so there's a certain threshold. And you have a lot of
1: older population that needs to supported, its so surplus in the generated where they are not necessarily going to participate in
0: exactly. productivity. Exactly. So, so we have a 30-year window where we have to grow rich. Right. So there are countries like Thailand and China where it is now becoming reasonably clear that mm. they are going to grow old before they can rich. Right. If we don't grow at 8-9% CAGR, annualized rate for the next 30 years, uh, in 2053, we will still be an upper middle income economy. Mm. We will not be a rich economy.
1: 8-9% is within reach? Is
0: Part of it is also when I mean, you're talking dollar and no. all that. So it's right. so it, it's a bit, but uh, 30 years is, is, is very hard to ask. Right. Yeah, I think 8-9% eight, eight, can happen over the next mm-hmm. decade or so. Yeah. But I think sustaining it on a CAGR basis. So because as you grow bigger and you start what they call in economics, the productivity frontier, right? Mm. You're doing things as efficiently as anyone else. Right. So then it's very hard to grow beyond that. You know, so the, the frontier is expanding at 1% or 2%, which is what US, Europe are at, right? Yeah. Uh, so as you start getting closer to that, your growth rate will fall, right. which means that in the first decade, right. you need to grow really fast. So that's the first big challenge. Right. The second is, of course, the, the risk and the threat of social instability. Mm. That if you have uh, only a few people getting these jobs, yeah. then uh, uh, the, the social structure, the social... Contract that every individual has right. uh, starts to to, to break, mm. and right. everyone does not. Then, uh, or, or, or some people who are frustrated enough will start breaking those contracts. Mm. Right. That means law and order goes down, then business becomes harder mm. to do, and a lot of other challenges start right. coming up. Um, my own uh, uh, fear is and apprehension is that uh, we will not be able to create enough jobs. Mm. Um, that that you know. Uh, uh, especially given that, you know, our female labor force participation rates, uh, I think they're understated compared to, I mean, their definitional issues, but even after you adjust for that, they need to go up, right? You know, Vietnam is at 70%. Uh, it's a very, very long way for us to go. If we want to get all the women into the workforce or to that 70% ratio, uh, then we need to get even more, more right. jobs. Um, if we want to move 10 crore people from agriculture, because we have 20 plus crore people and that's underemployment, yeah. you know, they're just hide, hiding there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so then even more number of jobs. So I don't think we'll be able to do all of that. At this stage, I'm slightly less worried about social instability in the next ten years. Meaning that in India, you know, the family structure uh, supports, you know, or, or you would know in your extended family in mind. Right. There's always some uh, cousin or nephew or uncle uh, who's who's done nothing in their lives, and with with with. Uh, food costs coming down, right? Uh, and and keeping people entertained is so much easier now. It'll give them a smartphone and a charging point and, and cheap data. Uh, so uh, so instability is something that I don't worry about immediately, but something that we need to keep away.
1: Right. So this whole topic of job creation, I think it's extremely relevant. I think I have deep interest in it. I think I'll try to find you at a later episode, and we'll just talk about that in a lot more detail. But let's go back to, I think, what you were trying to talk about, this whole Rise of manufacturing, you know, even things cutting edge, things such as you know semiconductor fabrics, uh semiconductor fabrics, et etc., being done in India. So let's let's talk about that, you know. So yeah, so so uh, so this is again uh, continuing with what keeps
0: me excited about the next ten years, right? So uh, so we'll we'll get to that. Um, uh, but so we discussed micro, we discussed macro, we discussed capital. Uh, we discussed how Indian companies are now becoming larger and more ambitious, right? Uh, now. Let's think about other basic things like Mm -hmm. the real estate cycle, Mm. right? Because for most humans, most uh, individuals Mm. and families, uh, house is the biggest expenditure of their lives. So, If you just add up, you know, the amount we spend on, or an average family spends on food, on clothing, and you multiply it, say, by 30 years, Mm. that number is still a fraction of what it would cost you to buy a house in Bombay. And so when you do that, you're committing a lot of money. And that's a very important part of expenditure. Right. Now, real estate construction in India has been stagnant to falling for nearly a decade. Uh, and now it's starting to turn. Mm. Right. So, so it should have turned in 2016, but then you know, RERA and demonetization forced another round of cleaning up. Yeah. Uh, 2018 should have started, but then ILNFS went bust. Mm. 2020, it was supposed to have started when COVID hit. Uh, so, it's already a cycle which is delayed by 5-6 years. So, I think the next 4-5 years, um, and this is very important, um, because in my view, this dragged down India's GDP growth by 1% a year for nearly a decade. Right. Wow. So, as this cycle starts to normalize and turn, I think the the opportunity size in terms of construction jobs, uh, demand for construction materials, uh, and general goodwill of getting into a bigger house, more productive house and all of that, and I think uh, that will be very important. Now coming to goods and manu- uh, services. Uh, so goods is a bit uh, more detailed. So let me just focus on services. Okay. Uh, see, in the last uh, four, four decades, yeah. uh, we've created about 54-55 lakh software engineers in India. Hmm. Right. Uh, I think this will double in the next 10 years. Right. Because the world needs a lot more software. Yeah. Uh, even if ChatGPT starts doing it, I think the people who need to who, who can use ChatGPT yeah. to write software much better uh, will. So, so I don't think this is going to destroy too many jobs. I think just improve productivity. Uh, so, uh, uh, and there is no other place where you can get engineers, right? So Eastern Europe demographically challenged. Yeah. No one wants to go to China. So, in terms of large pool of engineers which are accessible, this is there. What has also happened on services is business services. Mm. Um, So, you know, 40% of the workforce of U.S.-based consultants is now in India. Mm. So just as, you know, when when software was being disaggregated, right, so you take software requirements and deployments happen in the U.S., Mm. but the development and testing happens in India. This is the first 20-year process that we've been through. Now the process of consulting is being disaggregated, that you need... People doing client-facing work there, but all the other presentation-making, right. data crunching can happen in India. Forty, forty-five percent of global banking yeah. work happens in India. Right. Uh, as I was telling you, there is a semiconductor fab which during the day is being run in Malta, mm-hmm. in at night is being run out of India. Oh. So, uh, what COVID has done, just like Y2K did for software, it has it has stress-tested and accelerated
1: mm-hmm.
0: the 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 disaggregation of services and what can be done remotely. Right. So, if you can do something sitting in Ohio or Io- uh, Iowa uh, and your client is in New York, you can do it from Bangalore or Pune or Lucknow mm-hmm. or Bhubaneswar, right? yeah. so, um, and this number is growing already very rapidly, right? so it can be, I think, a very large number in the coming right. years. So on the good side, um, there are a few areas, where, See, goods, I said 24, 25 trillion dollar global, Global goods exports. Uh, there's a lot of double counting. Right. People mm. uh, do small value adds and right. keep moving around. Uh, in India, uh, our total exports are about four fifty billion dollars. Right. right, so it's not even. It's like two uh, percent of global exports. Yeah, one point eight percent, mm. and it has grown up a bit in the last two yeah. years, but it's still very small. 25 percent of global goods exports is electronics. Mm. About six trillion dollars, right? Right. In HS code 8485, that's whatever is included. In India, uh, that number in 2018, or from India, that number was eight billion dollars. Mm. Right. So we were absolutely absent right. in this global trade. That number is now closer to 25, but there's still a rounding error. I think in the next three four years, this will be over 100 billion dollars.
1: Mm.
0: So. Uh, uh, India is now starting to participate in this value chain. Right. Some of it is a very natural spillover from China. Correct. Some of it because of China plus one. Some of it because the labor-intensive stuff now cannot be done in China. They're running out of workers. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Vietnam and other countries cannot absorb because they don't have the scale. Right. Right. So, so a lot of it will happen to India. In India, and. Uh, now the supply chains are also, and this is a process that Japan went through in the 60s, Korea went through in the 70s, Taiwan went through in the 80s, China in the in the last two, two decades. Uh, so this India is now starting off on that on that path. So you start with assembly, then you like you know you start with phone assembly, then you start doing camera module assembly, battery module assembly, display module assembly. Then slowly the lenses start getting manufactured, the image sensors, you know, so all of those things start happening. And uh, it can be a very major driver of of exports from India. Autos and auto components. Mm-hmm. Uh, the transition to EVs has meant that China is starting to really do dramatically. well. Right. Um, and we need to latch on. We need some get get some lucky breaks there. But I think on auto components also, uh, the country the companies that started off, has Maruti indigenized its its uh, production. Yeah. It, all the component suppliers are now starting to get global scale. Right, mm. And and as India's scale of car manufacturing just picks up, mm-hmm. uh, you will start seeing the, the Indian auto component makers starting to have more to invest in R&D, right. starting to get become more cutting edge. Uh, and, and any industry disruption is actually fascinating, very, very useful for them. On things like chemicals, um, which are another big area of, of global goods trade, there is... Uh, India had a disadvantage in the cost of uh, capital, Mm -hmm. uh, cost of energy, and cost of compliance. So, uh, even though our compliance norms in legal terms may have been very lax, Mm -hmm. meaning not legal terms, but the the enforcement was very lax, Mm -hmm. there was a very natural enforcement because of uh, the the political reality. Mm -hmm. So, if you went and told politicians that, look, Europe is really struggling with its cost of energy. Mm. There's a lot of business that can move to India. The first response would be, you know, villagers complain. Mm. Right. So, so what the political system was enforcing was a very high standard of mm. compliance. Okay. Right? And uh, that, because China was not following that, mm. so that was a disadvantage for Indian manufacturers. Right. But as China has tightened it up, yeah. India's disadvantage is gone. Cost of energy, because Europe no longer has access to cheap Russian energy, right. India's disadvantage is gone. And Indian companies have become bigger, so, so there are many sectors where, right. uh, and we, I, I tend to think of these things as bottom-up, mm. uh, so there are many sectors where I think the competitive environment and the competitive positioning of, of uh, Indian companies is far better than it was a decade back. So Amazing. even on things like manufacturing and with all of this infrastructure improvement, the fact that uh, I think access to trained manpower is mm-hmm. going to be a lot easier uh i think all of these are uh, should mean that our our share of global goods trade should should also
1: outstanding certainly if you look back you know everything we covered right you know last there is a lot of tailwind of just you know last 30 years of steady progress a lot of things are changing and improving on ground from road network to electricity mobile phones uh this huge demographic dividend that's definitely there for next you know 10 15 20 years lot of overall public policies more and more in tune with both development and to a large extent inclusive i know there are pitfalls and job creation is a huge area of concern probably few others but if we just zoom out and there is you know this whole now almost a crescendo of you know this uh century of india is building just from your vantage point and you are a nuanced person you know look at everything but if you really zoom out and how much credence you give to the fact that, you know, it is likely to be India's century or next 25 years being, you know, Amrit Kohal, maybe, you know, we'll complete 20, uh, 100 years of independence in 2047. Just as a, for a young Indian, how should we think about, you know, India of next 10, 20, 25 years? See, um, a lot of the change, and which is why uh,
0: in several times in our conversation, I have highlighted the importance of ambition, of mm. a vision, all right, land. Uh, and... Uh, The fact that there is this momentum building up uh, itself is an advantage, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, it is no longer, so no procurement manager will be questioned now, why did you move to India, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: right? And so if you think about human behavior or behavior of global boardrooms, uh, uh, I think India becoming a lot more acceptable is something that I think uh, is great and, and that itself makes it more sustainable. So there are many of these, uh, uh, you know, as you study economics, you realize these virtuous cycles. uh, Because everyone is doing it, it happens. Um, But at the same time, I think we need to be uh, aware of some of the pitfalls and risks. Uh, The first is that we we are still dependent on imported energy.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: Most large subcontinental-sized economies in their growth have had uh, access to almost unlimited domestic pools of energy. Right. U.S., mm. Russia, uh, China. Yeah. Uh, right. And they learn to use that energy a lot better. Mm. I think in, uh, the, the problem in, in India is that India does not have uh, uh, you know, access to uh, uh, this energy. And therefore, uh, if global energy prices start becoming very volatile, this will create problems for yeah so that's a, that's a big vulnerability yeah. that i think of. i think in the next 10 15 years we'll be able to solve it yeah. uh, we should be able to solve it the second uh, i think if you're thinking 25 years yeah. um, we need to make sure that there is no no disruption to the political consensus mm. uh, that is emerging right right so uh, i think the big change was uh, has been that I think the deep state in India and the political establishment have realized that the only way to stand up to bullying neighbors is to become strong yourself. Right. Yeah. In many ways, this is very similar to what I think China went through in the 70s, mm. where USSR and Japan and right. Korea were all growing very rapidly, yeah. and they realized that they needed to become economically right. strong. And I think India is also realizing that. So the political consensus is, is now, or the deep state's conviction yeah. has shifted. And just like, you know, we, you and I developed an environment and then uh, similarly, you know, a lot of the, the, the present day bureaucrats, mm. uh, you know, the, the where they are starting to see the merits of of uh, a more open, and you know, so, so there's this consensus building up. We need to be very careful about when this consensus mm. breaks down. right? Uh, and what can make this consensus right. break down. And uh, uh, another big challenge for us, I think, is allowing decontrol to happen. Mm. You know, you've you, you scaled up. I mean, unless you delegate and you authorize, it's not going to work. And India is just too large, mm. right? So, uh, districts in, in UP are bigger than provinces of Indonesia, right? And no one talks about federalism within UP. Right. Uh, uh, and now, uh, I think at least some visionary politicians have started talking about how districts, yeah. need to identify what they're strong in and start investing right. in them because these are very large districts. Right. Uh, there needs to be some political shift. So just like, you know, uh, state governments are thankfully now uh, setting up like, you know, trillion dollar GDP targets and yeah. all that. Uh, the uh, 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 Now it's a matter of, I mean, I think in the next five, seven years, we should see the state governments willingly ceding some administrative control fiscal resources with, uh, you know, local governments and right. districts. Uh, otherwise, I think sustaining this level of growth will be very hard.
1: No, amazing. I think this is a thing we can keep talking about this topic. I think uh, it's just fascinating. You know, we live in very interesting times. I think a lot of, you know, once in a lifetime kind of events have kind of conspired together to put us in this situation. Yes. Opportunity is very genuine, real. Totally. Humongous. I think kind of likely growth we'll see in our lifetime, we'll see transformation. India from what it is today to probably something is very important in the global scale. There are pitfalls, risk and so on. I would, you know, first of all, you know, thanks so much for your time, Neilkan. No, no, I, I learned I so much, like some really good insights. I think you have your, your wealth of knowledge in this area comes through. I think you have, you know, everything is very deeply considered, deeply studied and I think, you know, and validated on ground. I would love an opportunity to, you know, sit down with you again and pick up some of these topics and in a lot of details. So hopefully, you'll be generous yes, with your time. Absolutely. I will chase you for sure. Sure. But thanks so much for taking the time. No,
0: thank you for inviting me. It's a lovely conversation. I loved it as well.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.